The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Has it been a year already? This is Thursday, January 18th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors or the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Actor-comedian Jim Carrey tweeted that he awoke at his home in Hawaii Saturday morning with 10 minutes to live. It was just after 8 a.m. in the island state when people began running through the streets worrying about loved ones and saying their goodbyes on selfie videos. Mothers lowered their children into storm sewers beneath the manhole covers with just 10 minutes to take shelter before the nuclear blast. They had all gotten the same warning on their phones and through their television stations. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill in all caps. It was a false alarm. Somebody, according to the initial official declaration, had pushed the wrong button. It was reportedly human error during a shift change at Hawaii's emergency management agency. Mistakes do happen. Japan had a similar incident three days later, but it was corrected within five minutes and there were no reports of panic. Now, a little over a year ago, a false alarm in the U.S. still would have been a big deal, but not nearly so much as it is this year. Under a president who has taunted a country well within striking distance, a country that is like the U.S. armed with nuclear missiles. After the attack warning went out, a commander with NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, said, We're trying to figure out where this came from or how this started. There is absolutely no incoming ballistic missile threat to Hawaii right now. And if the story had stopped there, if that's all there was to it, this would be, as it is, a major story about Hawaii's warning system and perhaps the nation's. A false alarm this time means people might not heed the next warning, which could be real. But the story didn't stop there, either. For those who have Twitter, and not everyone does, they were told nearly 15 horrifying minutes later it was a false alarm. And they learned that from a tweet from a member of Congress who'd gotten it confirmed with the head of the emergency management agency. The agency did not send out its own official all-clear message until nearly 40 minutes after the warning, long after the expected 10 to 11 minutes it would take for a North Korean missile to hit the Aloha State. As it turns out, Hawaii had not prepared an all-clear or false alarm notification for mass distribution. It had prepared a message for the missile strike, but no message to say there is no threat. Which is why it took 40 minutes to get such a message out after Saturday's Nightmare in Paradise. They had to call in their IT guy to program it in. For what it's worth, the head of that state's emergency management agency has taken full responsibility and says this will never happen again. The guy who pushed the button has been reassigned. Investigations are underway and they've gone to work trying to fix Hawaii's emergency notification system. But the story didn't stop there either. The president who's bragged about the U.S. nuclear arsenal and who has taunted a nuclear-armed North Korea was just wrapping up a round of golf on one of his courses in Florida where it was early afternoon. If the threat to Hawaii had been real or if Trump had seen that warning on his phone, that would have been the moment he would have been handed the nuclear football. And if the U.S. had launched what it thought was a counterattack, North Korea might have launched everything in its arsenal. In the event of a false alarm, that would have been the moment it would fall on the president to quickly assure Hawaiians and the rest of the country there was no threat. A normal president would assure us that, being his job to protect us, he would make sure such a thing never happened again. Fortunately, Trump was not handed the nuclear football, not intentionally and not accidentally as a result of that false alarm. The risk of accidental nuclear war is not hypothetical, says former Defense Secretary William Perry. Accidents have happened in the past, and humans, he says, will air again. Unfortunately for Hawaii and the nation, there was no comforter-in-chief as Americans in the Aloha State counted their remaining minutes. The president didn't issue any kind of statement at all. In fact, it wasn't until three hours later that he finally took to addressing his nearly 47 million Twitter followers. And when he did take to Twitter, it wasn't about the nuclear mix-up at all. So much fake news being reported, tweeted the leader of the free world, after Americans fearful of the fruit of his policies had taken shelter. 
Trump went on about our free press. They didn't even try to get it right or correct it when they're wrong. They promote a fake book of a mentally deranged author who knowingly writes false information. The mainstream media, he tweeted, is crazed that we won the election. Trump attacked the press again, unhappy over the Wall Street Journal report about hush money paid to a porn star he'd reportedly had a year-long affair with while married to Melania. He tweeted nothing about what had happened in Hawaii. Did Trump even know? The White House had also waited a long time to issue a statement, and when it did, it said the president had been briefed and, quote, this was purely a state exercise. The only assurance from the commander-in-chief was that it was Hawaii's fault and not his. It was Trump's attorney general, you'll recall, who once dismissed Hawaii as not our 50th state, but instead as an island in the Pacific. This Saturday, the 20th of January, will mark one year since Donald Trump became president. This Saturday could also be the day the U.S. government shuts down. Not all of it, but big pieces of it. That's the day the money runs out on the current budget, which it will if Congress doesn't pass a new spending bill by tomorrow. Even another temporary one that just kicks the can down the road. Lawmakers in each party are unhappy with their own lack of progress on everything from immigration to disaster relief to military spending, and to health insurance for millions of American kids. They had already come to realize they won't be getting to any of those things in this spending bill. With little reason for optimism, each side has already blamed the other in case there is a shutdown. And if there is a shutdown, Trump will have had something to do with that by, among other things, having made clear his motives by stating his preference for immigrants from mostly white Norway over those from mostly black nations, including Haiti and the 54 countries that fill the continent of Africa. He also included El Salvador. He called them shithole countries. He really did. Despite denials from him and others, what he said has been confirmed by veteran Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and by others who were present when he said it. And Trump's racist remark is going to make an immigration bill even more difficult because he was rejecting a bipartisan deal that had just been worked out that addressed both the DACA Dreamers and border security. Trump had decided to let DACA expire, but while he was making scatological references to other nations, a federal judge was ruling to block Trump's plan. Immigration started handing out citizenship applications to vetted Dreamers two days later. It was another mess made by Trump. And his remarks make cleaning up that mess even more difficult because Republicans need Democratic votes to keep the government open. Without Democratic help, a shutdown is on the Republicans who currently own the majority control of Congress. Democrats see no reason anyone should vote for a two-party immigration plan that the president has promised to veto. The Democrats have said they would be happy to help if the two sides could reach a deal on immigration, a deal now compromised by the president's vulgar, racist, and inflammatory remarks. Because those remarks push lawmakers more deeply into their own partisan corners. Lawmakers were newly divided into two camps, those who believe Trump and what he said and are okay with it, and those who know what Trump said and are not at all okay with it. If by chance lawmakers can strike a deal on immigration, then the federal parks will stay open this weekend and tens of thousands of government employees won't be furloughed. But once again, Republicans with their control of both houses cannot agree among themselves which way to go. Trump isn't helping. Even Mitch McConnell says it isn't clear just what the president would and would not sign. There's even a split inside the White House. Trump's chief of staff, John Kelly, said yesterday the president's views on immigration and a border wall have evolved, that he's found the difference between campaign promises and the realities of Washington. But Trump tweeted this morning that his views have not evolved and that a wall is mostly still needed. More chaos. But Trump's foul words didn't just affect what's happening here in the U.S. They caused a wave of condemnation from around the world. Norway was on the president's mind because he'd just met with the Norwegian prime minister the day before he spewed his bigoted bile. At their joint news conference, he proudly announced we had sold Norway F-52s and F-35 fighter jets, even though there is no such thing as an F-52 fighter jet or otherwise. Unless you're playing the video game Call of Duty, it has F-52s. 
And Norway was among the countries offended by Trump's distinction between their country and countries with a browner population. One Norwegian official joked his country might change its tourism slogan from powered by nature to not a shithole. Scandinavia was already on its guard against Trump after he earlier this year spoke of a terrorist attack the night before in Sweden, even though there had been no terror attack on that night or any other night. He'd apparently heard something on Fox News. Of course, Haiti and African nations were offended, demanding an apology and calling in American diplomats for a scolding. The African Union condemned Trump's statement. Soldiers from Haiti had fought along U.S. soldiers in the Revolutionary War against England. The President of the United States and the leader of the free world had called their country a shithole. But it was the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner who called the President's remarks shameful. Sorry, he said, there is no other word one can use but racist. South Africa has now filed a formal diplomatic protest at the U.N. South African morning TV host tweets, Good morning from the greatest, most beautiful shithole country in the world. A Johannesburg newspaper took the satire route, suggesting that casual Friday at the White House would soon include hoods and tiki torches. Trump insults El Salvador was the headline there. On Friday, before leaving for a long weekend of golf, Trump went before the cameras to sign a proclamation honoring Martin Luther King Day. On the day itself, the day the past three presidents spent doing public service work, Trump was on one of his golf courses. With his hateful words, Trump had again stirred up things in a negative way here in the U.S. and around the world. One might get the sense the world hates Donald Trump and isn't so sure about the U.S., He's provoked Iran with new sanctions, Iran now promising a severe response. He set off violent protests in Jerusalem over his stand against the Palestinians who share that city. Dozens more people injured in those protests over the weekend. A new worldwide poll gives Vladimir Putin a higher favorability rating than Donald Trump, much higher. Putin's approval, 43%. Trump's, 31%. Obama had a 59% approval rating to Trump's 31. Things are not much better here at home, and Trump is the only world leader out of a dozen who gets an unfavorable rating. The most popular world leader is Pope Francis, followed closely by Germany's Angela Merkel and France's Emmanuel Macron. Trump's approval rating in Germany is 7% as he continues his quest to make America great again. That revolutionary war we fought alongside Haitians notwithstanding, the U.S. has no greater ally than the United Kingdom. But this American president won't be visiting the U.K.'s capital, not as scheduled and maybe not ever. The trip had been planned since nearly a year ago and has, in the days since, been the subject of much debate in England. A majority of Brits were opposed to the visit. Nearly two million signed a petition against it, and mass protests were planned for Trump's arrival. And that was before they'd learned of Trump's blatantly racist comments. To go through with the visit would have been an embarrassment to the U.S. and its best ally. Reason I canceled my trip to London, tweeted Trump, is that I'm not a big fan of the Obama administration having sold perhaps the best located and finest embassy in London for peanuts, only to build a new one in an off location for $1.2 billion. Wanted me to cut ribbon. No, he added in all caps. Nobody bought it. The former head of Britain's Labour Party tweeted back, Nope, it's because nobody wanted you to come and you got the message. Or did he? Trump was, after all, wrong about the Obama administration selling the old embassy building and putting up a new one. That was the Bush administration, putting Trump once again at odds with reality and at loggerheads with the truth. It will now be Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's job to open that new embassy since the president isn't welcome there. Trump even has ambassadors to carry his brand of politics to foreign lands, including another Scandinavian country, the Netherlands. Our new envoy to the Dutch is Peter Hoekstra, who two years ago spoke of, quote, chaos in the Netherlands. There are cars being burned. There are politicians that are being burned, he said, adding, and yes, there are no-go zones in the Netherlands. None of which, none of it, is true. When a Dutch reporter challenged Hoekstra about this later on his arrival, he called it, quote, fake news until the reporter showed Hoekstra a video of him saying precisely that. 
like president, like diplomat. When Hoekstra arrived in the Netherlands last week to begin his duties as our representative there, he faced Dutch reporters again, reporters who wouldn't take no comment for an answer. Their main question was, would he admit that his claims were false about terror and chaos in their country two years ago? A visibly shaken hoaxer, this Republican congressman from Michigan, tried to brush off the question. This is the Netherlands, said one reporter. You have to answer questions. They pointed to a quote engraved on a fireplace mantle from America's first ambassador to the Netherlands, founding father John Adams. The quote is about honest and wise men. The next day, Ambassador Hoekstra did what he had to do if he expects his stay in the Netherlands to be comfortable. I'm shocked I said it. It was a misstatement. It was simply wrong. And then he added something that puts no one at ease. I got countries mixed up, he said. Back here in the States, Trump's words were the kind white supremacists like to hear. One website called Trump's ugly words encouraging and refreshing. Another white supremacist leader tweeted that millions of white people are asking themselves today, why indeed do we have to accept immigrants from shitholes? As dog whistles go, this one was more audible than most. Civil rights icon and Congressman John Lewis said, it makes me sad, it makes me want to cry. Across the country, most of Trump's supporters were unmoved. Trump supporters saying, that's just our president, that he's not racist and that he's right about immigration. Republicans in Washington reacted in different ways. Paul Ryan refused to go out on a limb against the man backing his agenda. Ryan meekly called Trump's racist vulgarity unhelpful and unfortunate. And then there are those who claim Trump didn't say what he said, or that they didn't hear it, or that they don't remember it. Two Republican lawmakers who were there said at first they didn't remember what Trump had said. Since then, they've both declared, no, Trump didn't say the thing that he said in their clumsy attempt at defending the man who helps advance their agenda. Senator Lindsey Graham, however, responded, I know what was said. And Graham said that in that meeting, he told Trump that America is not defined by its people, but by its ideals. There are at least three witnesses who say Graham told the president that he was a descendant of Graham's who came from, quote, shithole countries. Later, Graham praised Democratic Senator Dick Durbin for being the first to call out Trump's remark in public. Later still, Graham added, It's pretty embarrassing when you have to take your children out of the room just to report the news. Graham wasn't just talking about the profanity, but the racism. And then there's that bipartisan immigration bill that Graham had been pushing that was shot down by Trump with profanity. Although Graham says it's on Trump to save the dreamers, Trump blames the breakdown in that compromise on a senator he calls now Dickie Durbin. Quoting Graham, the discourse now is pretty low. It was a Republican from the Deep South who took the hardest stand in his party against Trump's bigotry. Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia said... He owes the people of Haiti and all of mankind an apology. That is not the kind of statement the leader of the free world should make, and he ought to be ashamed of himself. Some Republicans, and certainly the Democrats, were talking about introducing a resolution this week censuring Trump, officially condemning his remarks and scolding him for them. And then there's Jeff Flake. The Republican senator from Arizona who's speaking his mind in his final months before retiring especially since he's retiring because of Trump, saying he will not be complicit in Trumpism. Yesterday, Flake gave a speech comparing his party's president to Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. Even Nikita Khrushchev, he said, had banned the use of the phrase enemy of the people, a phrase that was used by both Stalin and Trump. But the story didn't end there, as you've come to know it wouldn't. Flake also criticized the members of his own party who, like the enablers of Stalin, are enablers of Trump to pursue the agenda of their party over the agenda of the country. Flake had already warned his fellow Republicans they were facing a massive wave of defeat this November if they continue to be the party of Trump and the party of Roy Moore if they continue, to use Flake's words, to turn a blind eye. But the Republicans in Washington haven't listened they remain caught between the political cost of standing with Trump as well as the cost of not standing with him. So Senator Jeff Flake was at the microphone yesterday on the Senate floor comparing Trump to Stalin for calling the news media the enemy of the people.
Blake called out Trump's cries of fake news and alternative facts. Our democracy will not last, said Flake, without truth and a shared respect for the facts. Flake said truth has been, quote, more battered and abused than any other year in the nation's history under Trump. Flake said the free press is the guardian of democracy, and he said that anyone who calls it into question is a person of whom we should be suspicious, not the press, he said. Flake gave his speech on the same day Trump would later hand out what he calls his fake news awards. They contained no surprises or new information, but you can turn elsewhere to find them if you wish. Spoiler alert, Fox News Channel is not on the list. Flake also gave his support to the Mueller investigation, saying we need to get to the bottom of Russian interference in our politics. Republican Jeff Flake could say these things because he's retiring. Senator John McCain, who's dying of cancer, also tore into Trump's attacks, demanding he stop using the phrase fake news. For very different reasons, these two men are saying very similar things. Because unlike the others, McCain and Flake have nothing to lose. Steve Bannon back in the spotlight, the president's pattern of racism, Trump and the porn star, and a comment from Bob Seska after this. Is it too soon to think about Valentine's Day? It's less than a month away now, and you don't want to forget or be late or have to grab something at the last possible minute. With ProFlowers.com, you can schedule your gift ahead of time, any date you wish, and get back to your life. It's a special gift of beauty right to their door without costing a fortune. And with Pro Flowers, it's always a perfect gift, guaranteed fresh for seven days of your money back, and they're not kidding about that. I've used Pro Flowers time and again, and they've never let me or her down. She's always delighted when that box from Pro Flowers arrives at her door. And right now, because you listen to this report, you can save 10 bucks on any order of $29 or more if you enter the code REALM when you check out at ProFlowers.com. Flowers for as little as 19 bucks when you type in the code R-E-L-M in the upper right corner. And that $10 off also applies to a range of flowers and plants, including a dozen red roses or their famous 100 Blooms bouquet. And if you ever forget a birthday or an anniversary or forget just about anything, apologize with flowers, save 10 bucks, and help power this show with the code R-E-L-M at proflowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. Trump's Homeland Security chief announced this week DACA recipients will not be targeted for deportation. Meanwhile, a Michigan man brought here as a child but too young for DACA has been deported after three decades of life in the U.S. Jorge Garcia could not speak as he and his wife and children hugged goodbye this week at Detroit's Metropolitan Airport. The question is no longer whether Trump has any decency, but whether we do when it comes to allowing him to serve as the face and voice of this country. There are no African Americans on his senior staff, and he has a traceable history of racism. Here to connect the dots is Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. President Trump is a racist. At this point, there's really no reasonable way to deny it. Ever since Trump, along with his dad, evicted people of color from their homes, then decided that it was his duty to persecute the Central Park Five for crimes they didn't commit, we've witnessed one account after another in which Trump targeted minorities as somehow non-Americans, as criminal others outside of mainstream society. Somewhere on Trump's list of top-shelf targets is, of course, the first African-American president who Trump insisted, quite derivatively, by the way, was secretly born in Kenya and was, therefore, an illegitimate president. From there, we need only thumb through the stratospheric pile of quotes and deeds from Trump's political career to further prove the obvious, while hiding behind empty self-aggrandizement as the, quote, least racist man in the world, this I can tell you, believe me, Trump continues to let his racism out to stretch its legs every chance he gets. Whether it's calling Mexicans rapists, whether it's attacking Gold Star parents who happen to be Muslim Americans, whether it's repeatedly defending Nazis as good people, whether it's announcing that everyone in Haiti has AIDS, Trump inevitably goes there. And now we can add his shithole countries pejorative to the list. And just a matter of days before this year's commemoration of Martin Luther King Jr., 
Meanwhile, at least two high-ranking senators, Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, each confirmed Trump's racist blurts during an Oval Office meeting about Trump's decision to inexplicably terminate President Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. Naturally, Trump supporters are all over the board. Some say it's fake news. Others insist he was correct in his assessment, while others agree with what he said, but that it wasn't racist. Regarding the latter, imagine if Obama had said the same thing about, say, West Virginia or Mississippi, two of the poorest states in the union. Obviously, the people who call those states home would have been deeply offended, even though median income in those states is indeed the lowest in America. They take it personally because it reflects not just on the land and its traditions, but primarily upon the people and their ancestors. Likewise, those of us who come from less fortunate parts of the world are more or less permitted to comment on our ancestral homes, but we recoil when outsiders do the same. Trump and his people seem shocked by this fact of life. Sure, you can find plenty of statistics and news items to make a shithole claim about less fortunate nations, but coming from a white trash president with a history of racism and who's been frequently photographed posed inside his vulgar nouveau riche gold-plated penthouse, it'd obviously be taken as a blanket insult about both the economies and people in those nations, as it was with El Salvador, Haiti, and so forth. Trump and his supporters also fail to take into consideration how the history of colonization by white imperial governments has damaged those nations, triggering decades of poverty and civil war. Plus, Trump only singled out countries with majority black and brown populations while favoring the very, very white Norway. If that's not profoundly racist, nothing is. The question we need to be asking this week is whether it even matters anymore. While those of us who continue to cherish the values of decency, fairness, equality, and tolerance are justifiably outraged by every instance of the president's racism, what about the rest of the nation? Beyond the continued morality of us normals, does the label even matter in 2018? Yes, the president is a racist, unequivocally and without apology. But what now? Most of us who follow Trump's daily annihilation of cherished American institutions know that racism at any strata of society, most importantly at the presidential level, shouldn't be taken lightly or allowed to pass only to be forgotten later. There has to be accountability. Trump, however, seems impervious to the charge. The president is racist has become almost a given, worthy of occupying a news cycle, but sadly not much else beyond that, and it shouldn't be like this. It seems as though Trump's episodic racism has become so frequent while also tossed in with the growing database of his other hourly trespasses, it's ultimately stripped of its impact, blunted in its severity. And maybe that's the strategy. Flood the news with so much crapola that it's impossible to remember individual items as they sail on by. His racism last week will likely be forgotten by next week, lost amid the debris field left behind by Hurricane Donald. Putting ourselves in Trump's tiny shoes, it's easy to see that he's just waiting this one out knowing that it'll eventually blow over, lost down the memory hole. I mean, if you're Trump, you have to be thinking, the base is happy and everyone else will move on to the next thing. It's a win-win for Trump. The president has gotten away with and has even been awarded for deeds that are just as awful as his shithole country's racism last week. Now we have no choice but to wonder whether the fitting label of racist means anything without the appropriate condemnations and punishments. Hell, his poll numbers aren't even taking a hit considering all the revelations of the last 15 days, and in fact, in some polls, his numbers have actually improved. With the past as prologue, it's entirely likely Trump's life will move forward just as it did after the Central Park Five, after the Kahn family, after Charlottesville, after birtherism, and after Puerto Rico. The president is a racist. Now, today, what are we going to do about it? If the answer is nothing, does the label even matter without the appropriate comeuppance? We'll see. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. Mike Pence, meanwhile, has taken another bullet for Trump. Sunday morning, Pence sat in the front pew at Metropolitan Baptist Church in the mostly black D.C. suburb of Largo, Maryland. It was a church founded in 1864, the same year Republican President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Its congregation today includes people from Haiti and Africa. The pastor spoke of the president's words, saying with vigor, 
Whoever made such a statement and whoever used such a visceral, disrespectful, dehumanizing statement to characterize the nations of Africa, do you hear me, church? Whoever said it is wrong and they ought to be held accountable. Witnesses say the face of the deeply religious Pence was more red than white at that moment, perhaps wishing he'd gone to a different church that Sunday morning or wishing for a different president. No sooner did I publish last week's news and comment when Trump proceeded to have quite a day for himself, even for him. It was a Thursday that normal presidents never have. He had started the day watching Fox News, getting riled up and tweeting he was against warrantless electronic surveillance against American citizens. He condemned the Pfizer provision as the cause of what he called the bad surveil of his campaign by Obama, even though surveil isn't a word and even though that claim has been thoroughly disproven. Unfortunately for the president, the intelligence community and most of his own party, his administration, had been pushing to continue that surveillance. The stable genius had just tweeted against his own policy while citizens and psychologists were questioning his mental state. Before Trump's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day was over, he had gone further than ever before in accusing federal law enforcement of a conspiracy against him. He accused an FBI agent of treason by name. And by close of business, he had labeled one-sixth of the world as shithole countries. On any given day in the Trump White House, his staff might expect one of these things, but not three. And it all happened inside of 12 hours. The White House phone started ringing at 7.33 a.m., and the staff spent the better part of two hours trying to clean up that mess Washington was in chaos after Trump's Fox-driven, self-contradictory tweet. On hold, demanding answers, Republican lawmakers and Trump's own intelligence officials. In the end, Trump would tweet, Today's vote is about foreign surveillance of foreign bad guys on foreign land. We need it. Get smart. The Senate has now passed a bill it's delivering to Trump this week. Get smart, he said. In the case of this president, smart seems to be whatever he's heard most recently. A bill is also being introduced in the House this week that would require presidential candidates to undergo a mental examination. Its sponsor says voters have a right to know if a candidate has the mental fortitude for the job. He says he has ongoing concerns about the president's concerning behavior. Congressman Brendan Boyle, who authored the bill, is calling it the Stable Genius Act. The bill is likely to go nowhere in Paul Ryan's Republican House. As for Trump's physical health at age 71, the White House quoted Walter Reed Dr. Ronnie Jackson in calling it excellent, but that was from the White House and not from the Army doctor who had examined Trump. And it should be noted the White House misspelled the name of its own doctor in that crafted statement. That was on Friday of last week, right after the exam. We were promised and got more details on Tuesday of this week. Despite the hyperbole from Trump's personal doctor before the election, Trump is overweight and is being treated for high cholesterol. Although he'd heard it wrong, Trump had been watching Fox News just before he'd said that Sweden had suffered a terrorist attack. When Trump bragged about the size of his nuclear button, it was right after a story on North Korea's nukes on the Fox News channel, just 12 minutes before Trump's tweet. It was his watching of Fox News that led the president to tweet against his own surveillance policy last week, throwing Washington into confusion. This week, Trump was watching Fox News again and tweeting about it. He's quoted the right-wing fake news channel frequently, sometimes several times a day, so it could reasonably be argued that, to some degree, this president's remarks and policies are fueled by whatever they're saying on Fox & Friends or Hannity or one of Trump's other favorite shows. The New York Times TV critic wrote that Fox & Friends is now the most powerful TV show in America, a label the network now wears as a badge of honor. It is Fox News that each morning gets a chance to pitch ideas to the President of the United States, many of which he takes up. The network appears to have greater influence over Trump than his chief of staff, the vice president, or other close advisors combined. Now, if you're a Russian spy or you spy for any foreign government, you're also watching Fox News to stay a step ahead of the American president. The Associated Press has recently documented that Russian intelligence has been working aggressively around the world to compromise journalists. And to compromise someone is to control them. 
The Russians are out to control journalists, at least the ones on TV. A cybersecurity company has determined that of all the groups Russia has tried to hack, media personalities rank in the top three. Fox News would seem an obvious target for the Russians. Sean Hannity is a potential target. A bug in Hannity's office would give the Russians at least part, if not all, of Hannity's frequent phone calls from Trump, according to a former CIA counterterrorism analyst. Russian operatives could snuggle up to Fox employees at all levels to get information and to influence those employees. So, the basic cable channel that seems to control the president may itself be subject to control by Russia. Cybersecurity firms say Russian hackers have, even since the election, been poking around the email servers of the United States Senate. Russian hackers have even set up websites that look like the Senate's own email system. Quoting a security researcher, they're looking for information they might leak later. Later would likely be sometime between now and the midterm elections in November. Russian hacking now even threatens state-level politics. Colorado State Senator Andy Carey found that thousands of his emails were on the website DC Leaks, which has also published Russian stolen emails from Colin Powell and members of the Clinton campaign. So what are officials doing to stop foreign interference in our politics? Little or nothing, as far as anyone can tell. 42 of our 50 states have not upgraded their election equipment in more than 10 years. And Russia knows it, according to Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Half those states have already been the targets of failed and successful hackers, and it took months to discover they'd been inside. Klobuchar, a Democrat, and James Langford, an Oklahoma Republican, are co-sponsoring a bill that would force multiple changes to shore up the security of our election process. There's no way of knowing right now whether their bipartisan bill could become law. In the meantime, as government continues to do next to nothing, the Russians are not coming. They're already here. So far, he set aside nearly 600,000 documents for the court and 87 devices, laptops, phones, and the like, as special counsel Robert Mueller continues his probe into the 2016 election. Washington lawmakers have dived back into their own investigations for the first time since before the holidays. For 10 hours Tuesday, former Trump advisor Steve Bannon was grilled by the House Intelligence Committee. Although he was questioned behind closed doors with no cameras present, there was little doubt about what he would be asked. He would be asked about his remarks about treason within the Trump campaign during the campaign, referring to the Trump Tower meeting that included Trump's son, his son-in-law, and his campaign manager. The remarks had been cited in Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, which quoted Bannon as saying, The three senior guys in the campaign thought it was a good idea to meet with a foreign government inside Trump Tower in the conference room on the 25th floor with no lawyers. And then Bannon said what others have said. Even if you thought this was not treasonous, you should have called the FBI immediately. Bannon also said there was zero chance that Don Jr. didn't march at least some of those Russians up to Trump's office after the meeting. So Bannon would be asked just what the president knew about that meeting and when he knew it. House investigators wanted to chat with Bannon even before the book came out about what he knows about contacts between the Trump campaign officials and Russian operatives. And although Bannon himself is not under investigation, those probing the collusion question believe Bannon can shed considerable light on it, especially since Bannon was fired from the Trump White House. He has since angered the president and the rich family that had backed Bannon's projects and the Breitbart website that employed him. He lost his job because he had angered the president. So Bannon might very well have been ready to talk when he faced the House Intelligence Committee on Tuesday. But then a series of surprising events began to unfold. Bannon, who had promised to cooperate and answer all questions, then refused to answer any question that had to do with the transition or the Trump presidency. He said the White House had instructed him not to. He may have been refusing to answer to help Bob Mueller who wanted Bannon's story before it could be mangled by a partisan congressional committee. CNN reports the Trump White House is instructing multiple witnesses in the congressional investigations not to answer any questions about anything that happened since Election Day, not just since he took office, but more than two months before that as well. White House orders or not, Bannon refused to talk to the House committee. 
He wouldn't even talk about what he'd said in the book. Lawmakers in both parties perked up, and not in a good way, accusing the White House of obstructing their investigation. Republicans and Democrats alike said Bannon cannot claim executive privilege because he isn't the president and no longer even works in the White House. They also say a witness cannot just claim executive privilege without saying why. There are several legally acceptable reasons, national security, attorney-client, and others. But Bannon didn't say which, and the White House then denied it had gagged him. Still, in the middle of those proceedings, lawmakers realized a voluntary interview wasn't enough, that Bannon would have to be subpoenaed to testify under oath. And the committee just happened to have a subpoena handy, even though handing out congressional subpoenas is a very rare thing. But Bannon continued to hold his tongue even after the subpoena. The White House and the Intelligence Committee were also tussling over whether Bannon could be asked about the transition that time between Election Day and the day that Trump actually became president. And now you know why the Steve Bannon interview with the House Intelligence Committee took 10 hours. And while the Intelligence Committee was handing Bannon its subpoena, on the other side of those closed doors, we learned that Special Counsel Robert Mueller had already subpoenaed Bannon to testify under oath before one of the grand juries that Mueller's been using to investigate Trump and Russia. The New York Times reports that subpoena went out last week. It was Mueller's first subpoena of a person. Mueller has subpoenaed documents before, but Bannon was the first person. Prosecution experts say Bannon wanted to get Mueller's story before the House Intelligence Committee, which is led by a staunch Trump supporter. The day was full of surprises. We learned that Bannon has now agreed to cooperate fully with Mueller without taking an oath, without appearing before that grand jury, and without claiming executive privilege. What's the difference? There's always been a constitutional dividing line between the various branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. Talking to Mueller is different than talking to Congress because Mueller is in the same branch of government as Trump. There is no constitutional conflict there. And even more threatening than Congress, lying to the special counsel is an especially serious crime. And so Bannon has promised to tell all to Mueller, which means Mueller's use of a subpoena to get Bannon to talk worked. And it underscores that Bannon, unlike Paul Manafort and others, Bannon is not under investigation. Mueller, and everyone else, is treating Bannon differently than the other figures, in a way protecting Bannon from Trump. Bannon joins Mike Flynn and George Papadopoulos on Mueller's growing list of cooperating witnesses, whether voluntary or under threat of criminal charges. Bannon was scheduled to face the Intelligence Committee again today, where he is also compelled to tell the truth and to possibly face charges if he doesn't. He may or may not show. He may or may not talk. The surprises may have only begun. Less likely to cooperate with congressional investigators is the third of Trump's three campaign managers, Corey Lewandowski, who's the latest to lawyer up and the latest to refuse to answer questions about anything that happened after Election Day. Lewandowski had previously said he'd be happy to speak with investigators and that he was fully prepared to answer any question about the campaign. Lewandowski had said publicly he's eager to set the record straight about his own innocence and that he hopes it will help the Russia probe end quickly. But he didn't talk much at all, and it won't end quickly. The evidence is, however, mounting that the Trump campaign conspired with a hostile foreign government and that the Trump White House has been lying about it. Emails from the Trump transition team reveal a lot. Those emails reveal that, for some reason, the Trump transition team was keenly focused on better relations with the Kremlin. Trump's first national security advisor, Mike Flynn, spoke with the Russian ambassador during the transition, even after the Obama White House had asked Team Trump to stay out of foreign affairs until January 20th. These transition emails reveal that Flynn had talked with Sergei Kislyak about Trump lifting those sanctions just hours after the Obama administration had announced them. These emails, now in the hands of the special counsel investigation, reveal that Mike Flynn was talking with top Trump officials as well, before and after his meetings with Kislyak. The Trump White House had taken the position that Mike Flynn was a rogue actor, that he'd acted alone and in secret and lied about his contacts with Russia. And we now know that is a lie. 
The new sanctions were retaliation for election meddling. The Obama White House also threw out three dozen Russian diplomats for the interference. In a transition email just hours after the sanctions were announced, Trump advisor K.T. McFarland wrote to a colleague that the sanctions were really about discrediting Trump's victory. McFarland wrote that the sanctions would make it much harder for Trump to ease tensions with Russia, quote, which has just thrown the USA election to him. But days passed after that, and Russia did not respond as it normally would to sanctions, or as it would when three dozen of its diplomats get thrown out of a country. Unprecedented, unnerving, and unexplainable. The Russians didn't retaliate to our retaliation. It was as if, perhaps, they'd been given reason not to worry about those sanctions and those expelled diplomats. K.T. McFarland was right. The sanctions did make it harder for Trump to cozy up to Russia, where business interests lie for him and his family and his Secretary of State, to name a few. Even the Trump-supporting Republican Congress was concerned and passed bills early on that literally have made it harder for Trump to get what he and his people and the Russians wanted. But McFarland also wrote that Obama's new sanctions could hobble Trump's presidency and tarnish his victory and would keep the spotlight on Russian meddling. And she wrote that Mike Flynn would speak with the Russian ambassador about those sanctions, which he then did. And that's when Russia, for the first time ever, didn't retaliate. We had thrown out 35 of their diplomats. They expelled none of ours. Moscow said it would get its revenge later. It was almost as if the sanctions and the expulsions hadn't happened. Great move on delay by V. Putin, tweeted Trump, adding, I always knew he was very smart. McFarland's email about all of this, by the way, was forwarded to Mike Flynn, Reince Priebus, Steve Bannon, and Sean Spicer. The claim that the transition team knew nothing about Flynn's chats with a Russian is also a lie. So, collusion aside, a case is building that the president has tried to obstruct justice. We now know that in March, Trump ordered the top White House lawyer to persuade Attorney General Jeff Sessions not to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. Trump reportedly felt he was losing control of the investigation. Handwritten notes, now in the hands of the Mueller team, show that Trump had spoken with then-Chief of Staff Reince Priebus about asking James Comey to clear Trump's name. One White House lawyer was so concerned about Trump firing the FBI director, he led Trump to believe that Trump didn't have the authority to do it. That lasted for a while. And now the New York Times says four days before Comey was fired, an aide to Jeff Sessions was asking a congressional staffer if he had any dirt on Comey. In spite of all the progress, the Mueller investigation may still not quite have enough evidence to make a winnable case for either collusion or obstruction. But the evidence is building, and the investigating continues. As Steve Bannon testified for the House Tuesday, Trump tweeted, the Russian collusion hoax is dead, if only he knew. On another matter, about a month before the election, the lawyer representing Stephanie Clifford deposited a check that that lawyer had just gotten from Donald Trump's lawyer. The check was for $130,000. The Wall Street Journal, whose editorial board supports Trump, has reported the deal and why it was made. The two lawyers had just reached a non-disclosure deal, keeping Stephanie from dishing what she knows about Trump. And she would appear to know a lot since Trump and Steph allegedly began a year-long affair in the year after Trump married Melania and while Melania was pregnant and while she was caring for their newborn son, Barron. Stephanie Clifford, by the way, is the real name of busty porn star Stormy Daniels. And the non-disclosure deal came after a number of women had already spoken publicly about Trump's unwanted sexual advances. It came after another porn star, Jessica Drake, had said that Trump kissed her without consent and offered her ten grand for sex. The deal with Trump's lawyer came just as Stormy Daniels had been negotiating to appear exclusively on ABC's Good Morning America. And ABC wasn't offering money, but the National Enquirer was. The Inquirer paid Stephanie Stormy Daniels Clifford $130,000 for the exclusive rights to her story, and then, because the Inquirer supports Trump, it never reported the story. And now that the Inquirer owned the story, no one else could report it either, because it was exclusive. 
In so doing, the inquirer may have broken federal election laws because such a payment before the election would amount to a campaign contribution that went unreported. Unreported donations were the primary undoing of former presidential candidate John Edwards a few years ago, and it is why this salacious story is important. The money. Stormy Daniels and fellow adult actress Jessica Drake met Trump on the same occasion. They were pushing their videos adjacent to one of his golf tourneys. There are photographs of Trump posing with each of them. Drake says Trump groped her. A third porn actress, Alana Evans, a close friend and neighbor to Stormy Daniels, says Daniels had told her about her sexual relationship with Trump. Just days before the 2016 election, the Wall Street Journal also reported that the Inquirer had also paid 150 grand to Playboy centerfold Karen McDougal for the rights to her story about a 10-month affair with Trump. We also now know that Fox News had this story a month before the election, but withheld it and killed it and did not publish what Fox knew. Welcome to 2018. In Missouri, prosecutors are investigating that state's governor who reportedly threatened to blackmail a woman with nude photos if she revealed their extramarital affair. The woman had been the governor's hairstylist. The top prosecutor in St. Louis calls the allegations against Governor Eric Greitens very troubling. Greitens has admitted being unfaithful to his wife a few years ago before he was governor. Reporters say they got the story and recorded evidence from the other woman's ex-husband. Greitens' lawyer denies the blackmail accusation and says he's confident his client will be cleared. The Republican Party is hoping he will be since it has recently viewed Greitens as one of its rising stars. Greitens had run his campaign portraying himself as a religious family man. Health news for Trump and the rest of us, saving net neutrality and robot strippers in the third and final segment up next. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do, so it's very important to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. If your Amazon dollars already go to another program, you can support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just below the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. It was because of Michael Wolff's book that Robert Mueller subpoenaed Steve Bannon, and it was because of that book that Trump asked the White House doctor to do what has never been done with a president before, to give him a test to prove that he's not neurologically impaired. For the first time, a president had his head examined, or at least his brain's cognitive ability. Like most people, Trump scored 30 out of 30. A patient would have to miss at least one question for a doctor to suspect a problem like Alzheimer's or whatever might cause slurred speech, as Trump had recently demonstrated. Even Trump advisors had doubts about his mental health, according to Wolf's book, but the test results contradict that. As for the slurred speech, the doc said he suspects Trump just needed a drink of water and that he might have had dry mouth after the doctor had given him Sudafed. As for Trump's physical health, he's as out of shape as many Americans are. He's borderline obese and has high cholesterol, neither surprising considering his diet choices and lack of cardio exercise. Trump does not have high blood pressure or diabetes, having never smoked cigarettes or drank alcohol. The doc says Trump needs to exercise more and eat more wisely and drop 15 to 25 pounds. He says Trump is resistant to the exercise but has agreed to change his diet, which has leaned heavily toward Big Macs, fried chicken, steak, and two scoops of ice cream and cake, the best chocolate cake. For his weight and age, Dr. Ronnie Jackson says Trump is in excellent health and with a higher-dose cholesterol drug, he should stay that way for a while. Because there remain so many skeptics about Trump's health, mental and physical, and because of Trump's earlier statements on the subject, Dr. Jackson promises he's not withholding anything. Many, however, are still not buying that Trump weighs only 239 pounds, and they continue to post pictures of him next to pictures of other celebrities with nearly the same height and weight. We also learn from Trump's physical that he takes Propecia for his hair loss and that he does not wear dentures, another suspected culprit in his bout of slurred speech. The 2018 influenza season has reached its peak. Nationwide, nearly two dozen children have died from it. And this year, it's not just children and the elderly. It struck down at least 42 people in California alone. 
It struck the healthiest among us, marathon runners and high school athletes who were otherwise in excellent health. Alabama is under a flu emergency. Schools in Texas, Oklahoma, and Ohio have closed. Patients are pouring into hospitals so quickly, a few hospitals have set up triage tents in their parking lots. ER personnel are working double shifts, medical supplies are running short, and non-essential surgeries are being postponed. Congress has cut public health budgets every year for the past 15 years and is on track to do so again this year. Some officials are seriously concerned, pointing out what might happen in the event of a bio-attack. There is no such thing as a good year for the flu, and even this one's not as bad as the one three years ago. The flu has now spread to 49 states. It should be at or near its peak for the season, but it is showing no signs of letting up. While this year's flu vaccine may have missed the mark on this year's strain, it is still effective against the other strains of flu that are also out there, and it can reduce the symptoms of the viruses it cannot stop. There are other reasons for getting a flu shot even now. Influenza spreads easily. Even someone talking to you from six feet away can transmit the virus to you. A cough or sneeze travels 26 feet, and the surfaces infected by hands and coughing stay infected for 24 hours. And a person who has the virus can spread it to others a day before they themselves even know they're infected, a day before the first symptoms appear. You can pass along the virus up to a week after your symptoms are gone, and children carry the virus even longer. And it's deadly, killing nearly 60,000 Americans just three years ago. That's ten times the number of people who died that year from AIDS. The flu is a top ten cause of death and the only one that's mostly preventable with a vaccine. The CDC says the 2016 vaccine prevented 5 million cases, prevented 70,000 hospitalizations, and prevented 3,000 deaths. The flu can spread so easily when people don't get vaccinated, and only a third of adults between the ages of 18 and 49 go to the trouble. As one doctor wrote in the New York Times, it's not all about you. Time is running out on health care for millions of American children, and it's become a political football now as the clock also runs out before a government shutdown Friday night because also tomorrow the money runs out on the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, that covers kids in 20 states. Without that government insurance, they won't be able to afford health care by the end of February. Ten of those 20 states will run out of CHIP money even sooner. The working families of nearly 9 million kids will lose their coverage, families making too much for Medicaid but not enough to afford insurance. Republicans say that's what the government marketplace is for. But the Congressional Budget Office says it's a far better deal for taxpayers to fund a CHIP than it is to subsidize those marketplace insurance policies. CHIP is a program that in the past has been supported by both parties, but this year Republicans have not been so interested in funding it. Until maybe now. Democrats have been saying they wouldn't vote for the Republican spending bill if it doesn't do something about DACA, the immigrants. But Republicans yesterday were again offering to fund CHIP as part of the spending bill, putting Democrats in the position of voting either against immigrants brought here as children or against children in general. As with the battle over DACA, stay tuned. After Trump and Republican lawmakers manhandled what was once called Obamacare, stripping funding and driving up premiums, millions of people went back to going without insurance. The number of Americans without health insurance rose by over 3 million in this first year of Republican governance. It is the biggest increase in uninsured we've seen since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. It's Trump Care now. In the fall of 2013, 18 million of us went uninsured. Under Obamacare by 2016, the number of uninsured hit an all-time low of 10.9%. Obamacare accomplished its mission of getting nearly everyone covered for a financially devastating health crisis. Obamacare also stopped the trend of hospital closings, especially in rural areas. States that expanded Medicaid under the ACA had fewer hospital closures, especially in rural areas. Hospitals in those states were 84% less likely to close than hospitals in red states that opted not to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. It meant that people in remote areas would have medical care, and it meant that a lot of hospital workers could keep their jobs, and those hospitals are the main source of jobs 
in some towns. One of the people now leading the federal government's drug policy turned 24 this year. Taylor Wyaneth is now the Deputy Chief of Staff at the Office of National Drug Control Policy, even though his qualifications to fight the nation's opioid epidemic are not clear. We do know Taylor was a law student and a frat brother, and that he organized a golf tournament and other events to raise money for veterans and their families. And then he worked for the Trump campaign. He got the drug policy office gig at the age of 23, and his quick rise in the ranks has a lot to do with unfilled positions and what's described as turnover. The office has done nothing about the opioid crisis because it's still without a director a year into the Trump presidency. Seven people brought on by the last director have also left, including the agency's top lawyer. Taylor Wyaneth's predecessors were a lawyer and a government veteran. And now he's doing their jobs. Or at least he was. When the Washington Post confronted the White House Drug Office about inconsistencies in Taylor Wyaneth's resume, an official told the paper that Wyaneth will be busted back to his old job and no longer serve as the Deputy Chief of Staff. A little over five years ago, the University of New Hampshire Hospital published an honors thesis explaining the influence of the beauty industry on women. It found that the unrealistic images portrayed by the beauty and fashion industries cause anxiety and low self-esteem in their female customers. Hair and complexion and body shapes in magazine ads and TV commercials and on product labels that seem too good to be true because they are. With sophisticated photoshopping and airbrushing, nearly anyone can look as perfect as the lady on the box or in the ad. In France last year, they passed a law requiring that any altered images associated with these products would have to be labeled as just that, altered from reality. And now in this country, a progressive drugstore chain is following suit. CVS says it will no longer touch up photos in its ads for beauty products, which make up a huge part of the store's profits. And in its stores, the company says it will mark the products it carries that also use honest photographs with what it's calling the CVS beauty mark. No sooner had Walmart announced it would be passing along some of its Trump tax refund to its employers that Walmart then announced it would have fewer employees. Walmart announced it's closing another 63 of its Sam's Club stores across the country, a blow to thousands of small businesses who buy their supplies at Sam's. Many have now switched to Costco and others where they could. Sam's parent company closed 10 stores immediately. Employees found out when they showed up for work or while they were on the clock. Walmart made $57 billion last year. This item's little more than a fun fact to know and share, but too shocking to pass up. December of 2017 was the darkest month in history in Moscow. And we're not talking politics. Russia's capital went the whole month without sunlight, except for six minutes. In December 17, the sun came out in Moscow for six minutes. That's bizarre. The city normally gets a monthly total of 18 hours of sunlight in December. This year it was six minutes. Nearly as bizarre and a bit concerning, the Dow Jones closed yesterday above 26,000 for the first time ever after crossing the 25,000 milestone just 12 days before that. Fun facts to know and share. As of this moment, there are two ways the FCC's recent ignore-the-people net neutrality decision could be reversed. First, there's a chance the Senate could vote to override the decision by Trump's FCC to kill net neutrality. A good chance. Every Democrat and independent in the Senate has agreed to vote yes on the reversal, along with one Republican. They just need one more Republican. So the phones have been ringing at the offices of more than a dozen Republicans considered most likely to be that one vote. Democrats plan to force a vote between now and the midterm elections this fall. The House probably would avoid a vote, however, and if the bill did pass there, Trump would just likely veto it. So what's the point of the Senate vote? To force Republicans to either go along or to, like the Trump administration, go against the country's wishes before an election. The other possible salvation of net neutrality 
is the lawsuit against the FCC by 21 states. They've filed a petition in federal court to block the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. Without net neutrality, companies like Comcast and Verizon can block certain content from you and slow down service for customers who cannot afford higher speeds. The state of Washington is also suing Comcast in addition to its part in the suit against the FCC. Look, Ma, no hands or feet. General Motors is asking permission to test a self-driving car it wants on the road by next year. The car has no steering wheel and no foot pedals, no controls of any kind, really. It's a Chevrolet Cruze AV built on the same platform as the Chevy Bolt AV. GM needs permission because cars are required to have airbags in their steering wheels, and this one doesn't have a steering wheel. GM thinks it can build about 2,500 of these a year once it chooses a city in the U.S. for its new factory. The car is guided by laser beams. And in case something does go wrong, it has OnStar, which calls 911 to report the crash and how bad any injuries might be. Passings and Passages A description I read online said it best. Dolores O'Riordan's voice was both powerful and vulnerable. It was certainly distinct, from its tenor to its Irish accent. She was the lead singer of the 90s sensation Cranberries. We still haven't heard what took her life at age 46, but she had battled with mental illness and depression. She is survived by her three children. Their father is a former tour manager for the 80s band Duran Duran. And Edwin Hawkins passed this week at age 81 from pancreatic cancer. Edwin Hawkins was a gospel singer who had a Grammy-winning radio hit in 1969 called Oh Happy Day. And if you know the name Hugh Wilson, it's because you may have seen it at the end of a TV series called WKRP in Cincinnati. Wilson was the creator and executive producer of the hit show, now gone at 74. He also wrote and directed movies, including Police Academy. But it's Hugh Wilson's name that pops up on the screen after WKRP's manager utters the words, As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. And all these years later, that scene still pops up every Thanksgiving on social media. The Jumanji sequel was the top movie this week with another $27 million. The Post was second, but with $19 million. The Greatest Showman was fifth with just under $12 million, but... The musical soundtrack from that movie is number one on Billboard's U.S. album chart. Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift are second and third. British artist Giles Walker built two robot strippers. It was initially a social statement because the heads on these robots are video cameras, a poke at the video surveillance that now covers much of Britain. They look like smooth white mannequins, and they gyrate, especially around stripper poles, these robot strippers. And this past week, they were on display at a strip club very close to the annual Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. A managing partner at Sapphire Gentlemen's Club says, we were looking for something that would sort of match what was going on. The artist says someone will someday make a sex robot, but he says it won't be him. He'll build a robot stripper, but he draws a line at Robot Hooker. Quoting Giles, I think it's a really dark area. I'm loath to go there. And finally, I can't make this stuff up, wrote Scott Bentley on his Facebook page, and that was good enough for me. For most of us, the holidays are now just a memory. But Scott says he was standing in line at the Costco in Santa Clarita, California, behind a woman who had brought back her dead, dry Christmas tree for a refund. She said she was returning it because it's dead. And Scott says she was totally nonchalant about it. Scott says Costco employees and other customers gently tried to shame the woman over her request. But employees looked up the purchase and determined it had not been marked not returnable. There will likely be a sign about that this year. For now, equally astonishing to Scott and the rest of us, Costco gave that woman a full refund because her Christmas tree was dead. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments.
The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.